All right, well, we're there in Isaiah chapter 54, and usually when I preach through a book or, or a chapter of the Bible, I, I try to, if, if we're going to cover an entire chapter, I try to outline it for you, and sometimes I even do alliterated outlines, and uh, tonight I don't have an outline for you. There's just so many good things in this chapter. We're just going to kind of read through it and make application as we go along, and every uh, once in a while, it's good to do that. And if you look at verse 1, I just want to bring, the first thing I want to kind of bring to your attention is um, that first word there. It says, sing. Now, that's a command. He, he's, he's not asking. He's not, you know, saying it's something that, that maybe you should think about. He's commanding, sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Notice these words, break forth. That words break forth means burst out into singing. He says just, just burst out in singing, start singing. And I want you to notice these words, and cry aloud. Now, keep your finger there in Isaiah 54. We're going to come back to it. But go with me to the book of Psalms. Uh, Psalm 95. If you open up your Bible, just right in the center, you're more than likely following the book of Psalms. There are so many passages in Psalms that I could have showed you. I'm just going to show you two. Psalm 95 in verse 1. I want you to notice what the Bible says. All throughout the Bible, you will find that God commands his people to sing. One of the reasons that at Verity Baptist Church we have congregational singing is because God commands us to sing. Today, the, the liberal churches are getting away from this idea of singing. And it's more of just like you go to church and you listen to someone sing, you know? And, and they don't, some churches don't have any congregational singing. Some churches will maybe have like one song of congregational singing. But you know, the Bible commands us that we ought to sing, and God wants to hear you sing. Are you there in Psalm 95? Look at verse number one, Psalm 95 and verse one. Notice what he says. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Go to Psalm 100. Now keep your finger there in 95 because we're going to come right back to it. But go to Psalm 100. Look at verse 2. Notice what he says in Psalm 100 and verse 2. Psalm 100 and verse 2 says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with Singing. The Bible says when you come to God, you ought to come in singing. And I want to encourage you, when you come to church or even just in your own prayer time at home or whatever, you ought to sing to the Lord. You ought to sing to God. And when you come to church, you ought to grab a hymn book, turn to the songs, and sing the songs with the congregation because God commands you all over the Bible to sing. Now, some people will say, well, I don't know how to sing. Or I don't have a good voice. Or, you know, I, you know I, if I sing, you know, uh, it, it's not going to be good. But I want you to notice, because God almost answers this question. He, he knew you were going to say that. So notice what he said in Psalm 100 and verse 1. Now, in verse 2, he said, serve the Lord with gladness, come before his presence with singing. But if you say, well, I don't know how to sing, or I don't have a good voice, and notice what he says in verse 1. He says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all you lands. Hey, you can at least make a noise. You can you say, well, I'm not good. It might be a noise. Well, just do it and make sure it's joyful and sing. You ought to come to church and sing. Go back to Psalm 95. Notice he said the same thing. Verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. When you come to church, I'd encourage you. Go to the, to, you know, go, go in the hymn book and start learning the songs and start singing. And, and notice he says, cry aloud. If you go back to uh, Isaiah 54 and verse 1, the word aloud there means out loud. It means, he wants you to be loud. Cry means almost to shout. He wants you to sing. And you know, I, I love it. Whenever, before I was a pastor, and of course, even as a pastor, but whenever I was in church, I always just wanted to be, you know, just like the loudest person singing. Like, my wife would be embarrassed because we would we, we'd go to church. And, you know, you ever go to these dead churches? And it's like, take your songbooks and go to page number, you know. And it's like, we praise thee, oh God. Man, whenever we, because, we, you know, we traveled a lot because uh, being in the military and stuff. we go to church. There'd be like three people there. They were all 80 years old. I grabbed my handbook. We praise thee, oh Lord. You know, blessed assurance. Hey, it's exciting to sing. And you ought to learn to sing. And you say, well, I don't know how to sing. Well, just make a noise till you learn. You say, well, I don't know the words. Well, just try to learn them. And it's exciting when you come to church. I mean, isn't it exciting when you walk in and people are excited, people are smiling, they're singing, they're excited for the things of God. They know that they're saved. You ought to learn to sing. And here you hear God saying in Isaiah 54.1, He says, sing. He says, break forth into singing. He says, cry aloud. But I want you to notice something else that's interesting about this verse. He says, sing, and I want you to notice this. He says, O barren. 
Now, someone who's barren is someone who's not able to have children. He says, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that dost not travail with child. Now, now here's what's interesting. He says, he, he says, you've got a woman here who doesn't have children, doesn't have the ability to have children, hasn't had, uh, does not travail with child. God's commanding her to sing. But notice what he says. He says, for more are the children of the desolate. Now, the desolate is referring to that barren woman. That woman that couldn't have a child. And he says, more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife. So he's saying, you've got a wife that's married. You've got a wife that has a husband. You think she'd be producing children. And then you've got this other woman who's barren. And not only is she barren, but she's desolate. Desolate means she's been left. I mean, her husband left. She has no husband. But then God says that this woman that's barren and desolate has more children than the married wife. You say, well, what is that talking about? Go with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter number 4. In the New Testament, you got the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And then you got the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter number 4. And this passage, Isaiah 54, 1, is actually quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians. And the Bible says we ought to compare spiritual things with spiritual. Whenever possible, you should allow the Bible to comment on itself. And basically, the Apostle Paul is kind of commenting on Isaiah 54. And he explains to us what God was talking about in this verse and in this prophecy. And I want you to pay attention, okay? Because Galatians chapter 4 and the passages we're going to be looking at, it can be a little complicated in the sense that there's a lot of going back and forth. So I'm going to try to explain it the best that I can, but I want you to focus. Maybe take some notes or you can draw some lines or things like that. But we'll begin in verse number 22. And I want you to learn what this passage is about. Galatians 4 and verse 22. Notice what he says. For it is written, Abraham had two sons, okay? Now, I want you to make notice of that, the fact that Abraham had two sons. And maybe even underline or circle that word too, okay? The one, the, the one by a bondmaid. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go back to Genesis. Uh, you, you can study that out on your own if you like. But if you remember... Uh, Abraham ended up having a son named Ishmael by his bondmaid, uh, Hagar. So Abraham, I'm sorry, Paul is talking about these two sons. He says, Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. So the bondmaid was the slave, Hagar. The free woman was the married woman, his wife, uh, Sarah. Now notice verse 23. But he who was of the bondwoman, was born after the flesh, okay? So I I just kind of want you to get this in your head, okay? The bondwoman had a child who was after the flesh, okay? So the bondwoman equals flesh. But he of the free woman, that's Sarah, was by promise, okay? So you got the bondwoman who equals flesh. You've got the free woman who equals promise. Look at verse 24. Which things are an allegory? So here the Bible is telling us this, this is the, this story of Ishmael and Isaac, of Hagar and Sarah. It's an allegory. Now, an allegory is a picture. It's like a word picture that reveals a hidden meaning. It's almost like the parables of Christ that he gave on this earth. So the Apostle Paul is telling us, this is an allegory. This is a a word picture, and it's got a hidden meaning. And he wants to explain to us what this means. Look at verse 24. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants. Circle that word, two covenants. So it's an allegory. These two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. The one born of a bondmaid and the other one born of a free woman. The one born of Agar and the other one born of Sarah. These two sons illustrate two covenants. Notice what he says, though. The one from Mount Sinai. Now, if you've read your Bible at all, Sinai should probably sound familiar. It's a pretty famous mountain in the Bible. It's, uh, it's the mountain, if you remember, where Moses went up Mount Sinai and met with God. And there at Mount Sinai, Moses received uh, what we know as the Ten Commandments. And you've got that whole, you know, episode there that happened in Sinai. Now, here's what you got to understand, okay? Sinai is synonymous with the religion of the Jews or the nation of Israel. I mean, if you talk about a, an important event or an important mountain on, you know, in the Bible for the Jews, it would be Mount Sinai. In fact, at Mount Sinai is where they entered into a covenant. 
with God. If, if you, if you uh, listen to you know, theologians or whatever, or people who use uh, these different types of terms, you will learn that there was different covenants that God made. God made an Abrahamic covenant with Abraham and his seed. But there was another covenant given to Moses, or at the time of Moses, where the children of Israel basically entered into this covenant with God, and in, in a way, they became married to God. It it was the equivalent of God will be your protector and God will be your provider. And if you do these things, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to do this for you. But if you don't do these things, I'm going to get rid of you and I'm going to send you into bondage and all these things. That's what Sinai represents. It represents the nation of Israel. It represents the Jews. But I want you to notice verse 24. Which things are an allegory for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, and right there, any Jew or anybody who's read the Bible, you know, Christians that maybe read the Old Testament and studied it, would, would know Sinai, okay, that's Moses, that's the Ten Commandments, that's the children of Israel, that's that Mosaic covenant. And he says, the one from Mount Sinai, but notice what he says, which gendereth to bondage. Do you see that? And he equates Sinai with bondage. Now, that bondage, if you remember back to verse 22, is that bond maid, the maid that was not free, which is, notice verse 24, from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is not Sarah, but Agar. Do you see that? God equates Agar, Hagar, the bond maid, to Sinai. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because there are dispensationalists out there today who will take Galatians chapter 4 and they'll say, this is about Islam and Israel. This is about, you know, Palestine and, and peace in the Middle East. And they'll say, Hagar, you know, she gave birth to Ishmael and those are the descendants of the Islamic people and blah, blah, blah. They can't even prove that. We're not even sure that that's true. But they'll say, this is about Islam and Israel. But I'll, I'll, I'll show you, it's not about Islam and Israel because Sinai, I mean, look at verse 24. You got to underline this or highlight it. Sinai, which gendereth to bondage. Notice what he says, which is Hagar. So according to Paul, who represents Sinai? It's Hagar, the bondmaid. Now notice verse number 25. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai. Could it be any more clear than that? Now they, they would say, no, Sarah is Mount Sinai because Sarah gave birth to Isaac and Isaac gave birth to Jacob and Jacob's name was changed to Israel and Israel had 12 sons, which were the 12 sons of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel. But according to Galatians 4.25, Sinai is Agar, or I'm sorry, Agar is Mount Sinai. Look at verse 25. In Arabia, and just to make it more clear, notice what he says, answereth to Jerusalem, which now is. So he says in this in this allegory of two covenants represented by two brothers, by two sons, he said the first covenant represented by the bond made by Hagar, he says it is connected to the flesh, it is connected to Sinai, it is connected to bondage, it, is, it answereth to Jerusalem, which now is. That, that's that connection uh, right there. Look at verse 26. But Jerusalem, which is from above. Now, this is a different Jerusalem. You got two Jerusalems. You got Jerusalem, which now is, meaning the Jerusalem that exists right now, the Jerusalem, you know, the Israel, the Tel Aviv that exists right now. And then he says, you've got another Jerusalem, which is from above. And we're going to look at that here in a minute. He says, there's a Jerusalem that's up in heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, or that new Jerusalem. Notice what he says, verse 26. But Jerusalem, which is above, is Free. You see the opposites there? You got Jerusalem, which now is. It's connected to the bondmaid. It's connected to bondage. Then you've got Jerusalem, which is from above, and that's free. And I want you to notice what he says, which is the mother of us all. Now notice, the book of Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul, who was a Jewish believer. And it was written to the church in Galatia, which are Gentile believers, by and large. I'm sure there was Jews there, probably. But the, the, the nation, you know, you're going to be talking to Gentiles, is who the uh, book of Galatians was written to. And here's what Paul says to those Gentile believers. As a Jewish believer, he says, Jerusalem, which now is, is free. And Jerusalem, which now is, is the mother of us. Of us all. Now, you say, why are you showing us all this? Because that's the context 
that is given to Isaiah 54 and verse 1. Because notice what happens in verse 27. He says, for it is written. Now, when he says for it is written, he's saying that because he's about to quote the Old Testament. And specifically, he's going to quote Isaiah 54 and verse 1. It ought to sound familiar. Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now, you say, well, I'm not following this. And here's what you got to understand. In Isaiah 54.1 or Galatians 4.27, they're both quoted, same scripture. You also have two women. One that's barren or desolate, does not have a husband, did not get married at Mount Sinai, was not given a covenant, was not given the oracles of God. You understand? Are you following what I'm saying? And you've got another woman who was married, who did have a husband, who was given the oracles of God, who should have, you would think, if you looked at these two people, these two nations, if you look at the children of Israel, you would think, well, they're going to produce, they're going to give us children, they're going to, you know, uh, uh, produce something because they have God as their husband, they have the word of God, they have the, the, the prophets, they've got all these things, and then you've got these other people over here, they've got nothing, they should be barren, they should be desolate, but here's what he says, in the end, the barren and the desolate ended up producing more children than the married wife. And he says, that woman is the mother of us all. So, so what are these two covenants? You've got to understand, it's the old covenant and the new covenant. So you've got, you got to understand this. People sometimes criticize this. They'll say, oh, you guys, you guys believe in replacement theology, that God basically gave up on, the, on Israel and then he created a new covenant. Hey, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that there was an old covenant and now there's a new covenant. And you say, well, why did God, God get rid of the nation of Israel? Here's why he got rid of them. Because they would not produce. Because they had, all these, the, the, they had all these promises. They had all these prophets. They had the, the word of God and the power of God. But instead of going out and reaching people, instead of being the lighthouse to the world and preaching the gospel to the world, they got filled with pride. And they basically became these Calvinists who said, well, God chose us and no one else and we're special and we're not going to preach the gospel to anyone. And God said, you know what? I don't need that. Go to the book of uh, Matthew. Let me give you a verse. Matthew uh, chapter number, uh, let's see. Matthew chapter number, good night. What did I do with? Matthew chapter 21. That's where I want you to go. Matthew chapter 21. Look at verse number 43. In Matthew 21, God basically explains the same thing, but in a different way. In, in Isaiah and in Galatians, he gave us the allegory. Now, now, look, it's an allegory, okay? It's an illustration. It's not, not literal. They didn't literally get married with God. It's just, it's, it's a story meant to reveal a hidden truth. Here, God gives us another example to kind of explain what he's, what he's talking about. Matthew 21, look at verse 43. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. If you've got a red-letter edition Bible, these words will be in... Read, because they actually came out of the mouth of the Lord. Notice what he says, Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore say I unto you. Now he's talking to the Jews. Notice what he says. The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Here's what he said. You're not producing. He says you're not doing anything with what was given to you. In fact, things are getting worse and you're allowing all this false religion and false thinking into the nation of Israel. He said, I'm going to take the kingdom of God from you. I'm going to take the responsibility of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and I'm going to give it to another nation. And what nation was that? That was the nation of Gentile believers. And when we all believed, we became the nation of God. We were that new Jerusalem. We're, that, we're His new covenant. And He said, I'm going to give it to that nation. But understand this, okay? Because here's what happens when you preach these things. Gentile believers basically start doing the same thing that the Jewish Old Testament believers failed at. And we start getting filled with ourselves. And we start thinking, oh, we're better than those Jews. We're better than those Old Testament Jews. They rejected Christ and they rejected this. And look, it is a false religion. Judaism is a false religion that rejects Christ and all of that's true. But listen to me. God did not choose you because you're special. The only reason God chose us and gave us the covenant and gave us the ministry of reconciliation is because he wanted us to do something that they failed to do, which was produce fruit. 
And if you fail to produce fruit, guess what? You're as useless as they were. And notice what he does. Go back to Galatians 54. Look at verse 1. Galatians 54, verse 1. And by the way, Christians that don't produce fruit, God has no need for you. I mean, that's clear all throughout the Bible. He gives us a story of a tree that won't produce fruit. He said, this tree is just taking up space. We ought to just get rid of this tree. It's not, it's not worth even having here. Now, notice what he says. Isaiah 54, verse 1. Single barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate. That desolate is that new covenant. That desolate woman, that the one that you would think, she's not going to produce anything. She ended up having more children than the married wife, the, new, the first covenant, the one that had everything going for her. She ended up doing nothing, saith the Lord. Now notice, now he's talking to the desolate. He's talking to the barren woman in verse 2. So notice what he says. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not. Lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. Here's what he's saying. He's looking at this woman who's barren and she's desolate. She can't have a child and she doesn't even have a husband. And he says, you need to start making room. You need to start making your house bigger because you're about to break forth. You're about to burst out with a bunch of babies and a bunch of fruit because I'm going to give you the covenant that they failed to do anything with. And he says, and it goes all the way back, all the way to the time of Isaiah and even to Genesis. Our job is to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even all the way back here, he's saying, I wish the married wife would have produced something, but I'll get rid of the married wife, and I'll find some barren, I'll find some desolate, I'll find some other nation that has nothing going for it, and I'll give them the covenant if they'll produce children, if they'll produce fruit. And he says, enlarge. He says, get bigger. He says, grow. He says, make more room. Reach more people. And you find that all throughout the Bible. Go to the book of Luke. Let me give you another example. Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, look at verse number 16. Luke chapter 14, verse 16. Luke chapter 14 and verse 16, notice what he says. And then said he unto him, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke 14, 16. Again, we have another parable here, another picture, another allegory. Then said he unto him, a certain man made a great supper and bade many. The word bade means to command or to direct. He directed many people to come to the great supper. And sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. He said, he said I, I prepared a supper, I prepared a meal. Come, I want you to come. Look at verse 18. And they all with one consent began to make excuses. Isn't that like our society today? The first said unto him, I bought a piece of ground, I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And i got to ask this guy a question. Who buys property without looking at it? He said, I bought a piece of property, but I haven't seen it. He's like, that is such a lame excuse. Look at verse 19. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I go to prove them. That's like buying a car without, you know, test driving it. Again, these excuses are not very good. And by the way, neither are yours. We like to make all the excuses. Well, here's why I can't go reach someone. And here's why I can't go soul winning. And here's why I can't go knock on someone's door. And here's why. You don't understand, Pastor. I'm just a little shy. I'm just a little t-. Look, your excuses are bad as these guys' excuses. They said, they said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. Look at verse 20. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And I, I don't know what that means. So that, ser- so, so that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Notice, then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servants, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes out of the city, and bring them in hither, the poor and the maimed and the hot and the blind. Now the picture here is not about church. We, sometimes we, people apply this to church. But the idea here is that it's the house of God. And God wants his house to be full. And he's going out and he's reaching. He's telling people, hey, come, come in, come in. And they're making excuses. They're saying, no, no soliciting. You know, they're saying, no, we don't want it. We don't want to hear it. And that, now notice what happens though. Verse 21. So the servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to the servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes and the cities and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded. And yet there is room. No, he says, there's still room for more people. Verse and the Lord said unto the servant, Go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. You got to understand this. You got to get this. It is God's agenda. 
It is God's plan. God wants His house to be full. When, when we get to heaven and we have that, you know, that, that, that supper with the Lamb up in heaven and, and the marriage supper of the Lamb and all those things, God wants there to be many people there. He wants it to be full. And He gave us the job to go out and reach people. And that's exactly what He's talking about. Go back to Isaiah 54. Look at verse 2. Notice what He says. Isaiah 54, verse 2. Enlarge the place of thy tent. He said, get a bigger place. He said, get a bigger building. Reach more people. And let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Remember we were talking about this morning? They would have these buildings that were like tents. They were tower out. He said, if you got to stretch that thing to make it be able to fit more people, go ahead and do it. Uh, he said, stretch the forth the curtains of thine habitation. He says, spare not. Notice, lengthen thy cords. He said, you need more cord. He said, you need more rope. He said, you need to make it bigger. He said, lengthen thy cord and strengthen thy stakes. And here's what you got to understand, okay? There needs to be, you say, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you guys just want to grow a church and you just want to, you know, get more people to come. Listen to me. This morning's sermon ought to be enough proof that we don't have this agenda of just church growth at no cost. Our job is to preach the Bible. God will, you know, increase and God will uh, grow the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But it should be our desire to see more people in church, to actually physically grow. You know, it should be our desire to want to go get another building, a bigger building. Why? To reach more people. Why? So we can say that we got a bunch of people. No, because every single person is a soul. And every single person needs to hear the gospel and get baptized and be taught the things of God and grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And here's what you got to understand. There needs to be building and growth here so there can be building and growth up there. And here's the interesting part of that. If there's no building and there's no growth here, there'll be no building and there'll be no growth up in heaven. But the Bible says that hell hath enlarged itself. See, hell will grow if heaven doesn't. And hell will grow if Verity Baptist Church doesn't. And that's why God said, I have no need for these Jews that are filled with pride and they're lazy and they think they're special because they got some sort of a covenant. And he said, I'll go find that barren woman, that desolate woman, if only she'll produce fruit. And that's you and I. And God's agenda. You say, Pastor Benz, why do you guys do all this soul winning and soul winning? You're trying to get us to reach people and invite people and preach the gospel. Why? Because that's the agenda that God has given for us. He wants them to come in that his house may be filled. Go back to Isaiah uh, 54. I don't know if you're there or not. Look at verse number 5. Isaiah 54 and verse 5. We'll come back to verse 4 in a second. We'll kind of change gears here. In verse 5, we begin to get a a different idea here. We're given, and it's kind of, it goes together, but In verse 5, we're given the different roles of God that God plays in our lives. Notice what he says. He says, for thy maker. If you don't mind writing in your Bible, right next to that word maker, you can write creator. That's what that means. He he created us. He's our maker. Notice what he says. For thy maker is thine husband. Right next to that word husband, you can write companion. The Lord of hosts, right? The the Lord of hosts means he's the commander in chief. Right next to the Lord of hosts, you can write commander is his name. The Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, right there you can write Christ, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. See, he, he, he plays all these different roles. He's our creator, he's our companion, he's our commander, he's our Christ, he's our producer, he's our provider, he's our protector, he's everything we need. It's God, that's all we need. You say, people get all caught up in all these things, and I need a bigger house, and I need a better job, and I need more vehicles, and I need more fun. Look, all you need is God. Because he is everything we need. In, in the Lord Jesus Christ, I find all that I need. Look at verse 6. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when thou was refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath, hid, I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with, I want you to notice this, this phrase. With everlasting kindness. A few, a few weeks ago, uh, somebody asked me, you know, does the Old Testament preach eternal security? And at the time I thought, you know, there are some verses, but I don't, I don't really know if the Old Testament really talks a lot about eternal security. I can think of a few passages, you know, but since I've been asked that question, it seems like every time I read the Old Testament, I'm just seeing passages about eternal security. Because no, he says, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee. Now, how long will the, the kindness of God last? 
everlasting. Saith the Lord thy Redeemer, talking about salvation, look at verse 9, For this is as the waters of Noah unto me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. He said, in the same way that I said that, that, that I would never flood the earth, you know, that story of Noah in the book of Genesis, he says, in the same way I said that I'm not going to rebuke you, I'm not going to get rid of you, I'm not going to leave thee, nor forsake thee. Look at verse 10. For the mountains shall depart. Now here's what he says. The mount, he doesn't say the mountains might depart. He doesn't say if we don't get a hold of global warming, you know, the mountains going to depart. He says the mountains shall depart. That's a promise. And the hills be removed. It's not that they might be removed. They will one day be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from thee. And by the way, that, that verse teaches you there. It's a waste of time to be an environmentalist. And I, look, I'm not, I, I think, you, ought, you know, I don't think you ought to litter and I think you ought to, you know, throw your trash in the trash can and all those things. But we got these people running around today and they're making a religion out of being an environmentalist and we got to protect Mother Earth, blasphemous. And we, you know, we got to make sure that, that, that the earth, look, the Bible says this earth is going to be destroyed in a fervent heat. And by the way, someone ought to tell this to the Jehovah's Witnesses who think we're going to live on earth for all eternity. He says, hey, the mountains shall depart, the hills shall be removed. He says, it's going to happen. This world is going to be destroyed one day. So we ought to take care of it, and we ought to enjoy it, but don't worship this earth. But my kindness shall not depart from me, neither shall the covenant, notice what he says, the covenant of my peace be removed. See, the difference between the covenant that he gave the children of Israel at Mount Sinai and the covenant that he made with us is that at Mount Sinai, he, gave, he, he, he told them, you, it was conditional. He said, if you do X, Y, and Z, I'll do, I don't know what comes after Z, you know, I'll do whatever. But here's the thing, when you got saved, God says, all you got to do is believe, and I'll never take it away. He said, the covenant of my peace, he said, he, said, he said, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. Look at verse 11. Again, we kind of change gears a little bit, but talk, talking about the same subject, notice what he says in verse 11. Oh, thou afflicted. You ever felt that way, afflicted? You ever felt like you were under attack? You ever felt like... Things are happening, and it's, it's bad, it's hurting. The word, word afflict means to be, you know, persecuted or to be going through troubles, you know. It, it means to be, 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 be being put in pain. You ever felt like that? Like, man, just things are happening, and I, I feel afflicted. Now, notice what God says to the afflicted. He says, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest. Now, the word tempest means a storm. You ever felt like you're going through a storm? You know, the storms of life will come. From time to time, and we'll find ourselves. There's so many stories in the Bible about storms, and they illustrate the fact that from time to time we go through trials and tribulations and struggles. Notice what he says, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted. You ever felt not comforted? You ever felt like someone could not even comfort you? Because of what you're going through and what you're experiencing. People say, you know, we're praying for you, and people say, I'm so sorry, and they mean it, but they can't really comfort you based on what you're ha what's opening, happening in your life. Now notice how God comforts, because he says this, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, he says, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, and thy foundations with sapphires, and I will make thy windows of agate, and thy gates of carbuncle, and all thy borders of pleasant stones. So God is talking to people who are, they're going through something. They're being afflicted. They're going through a storm in their life. They don't feel comforted. They, they, they feel like things are happening and things are bad and, and this is a trial and this is a tribulation. And then God says, hey, but listen, you know what? I'm going to give you some pleasant stones. He said, I, I'm going to give you sapphires and agates and, and carbuncles. He said, well, what is God talking about? Go to the book of Revelation, chapter number 21. Remember, we, we were talking about in Isaiah 54, 1 about, you know, Jerusalem, which now is. Versus the new Jerusalem, which is from above. Well, in Revelation 21, God describes that city, New Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice what he says in Revelation 21, and look at verse number 10. Revelation 21 and verse 10. Because you say, well, why, why is God talking about precious stones with, um, 
with people who are going through trials and struggles and tempests and are not comforted. But I, I think it will make sense for you in a moment if you look at Revelation 21. Look at verse 10. Notice what he says. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me a great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone. Notice, most precious, even like jasper stone. And clear as crystal. He says, this city, he said, I saw this city coming out of heaven. He said, it it was a beautiful city. It was like the most, the the stones of the city were the most precious. He says, they were clear as a crystal. Could you imagine a city that is clear? A city of glass. But it's not glass. It's just so, it's the clearest crystal. You know, you ladies go out or your husband's gone. They buy you those diamonds, right? And the diamonds are more expensive based on their clarity, you know? I don't know much about it because I, I get all my wife's jewelry from those little things you put a quarter in and you twist it, you know, that's, that's where I get my jewelry from. But um, I don't, you know, don't tell my wife that. That's between you and I. But, um, you know, it's, and he's talking about this is the clearest crystal. He said there, there's, no, there's, no, there's no, you know, markings on this. He said it's so clear. Look down to verse number 16, Revelation 21, look at verse 16. And the city, now here's what's interesting about the city. The city lies four square. Now, the, the word four square means consisting of four corners or four right angles. Now, notice what he says. And the, the length is as large as the breadth. Okay, now, the word breadth means width. So here's what he's saying about this city. It's a square city. And he says it's as long as it is wide. Or as long as it is wide, you know. And he measured the city. With the reed, 12,000 furlongs. And notice what he says. The length and the breadth, the width and the height um, of it are equal. So here's what he said. He's describing the city made out of precious stone, made out of crystal that is so clear that, you know, light just shines through it. He says it's, it's a square city. He says it's as wide as it is long. He says it's as tall as it is wide and as it is long. I mean, I've never seen a city like this. You know, it's like, it's like a three-dimensional city. And we can't even really understand that or grasp that. Look at verse 17. And he measured the walls thereof in 140 and four cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of the angel. And the building of the wall. Now notice, here's what I want you to notice. Notice the... Descriptions that he's giving. The building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. Again, we're told that this purest gold is not yellow, but it's clear against the ideas that everything in the city, city is glass. It's see-through. Verse 19. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of, notice, precious stones. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, an emerald. The fifth, uh, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, a topaz. The tenth, a chrysopris. I don't even know what these things are. The eleventh, a jacinth. The twelfth, an amethyst. Now look at verse 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Sometimes people talk about the gates of pearl, you know. But, you know, it's not that the gates have pearls on them. It's that the gates are actually made out of pearls. Now, you got to think, that's going to be a pretty big pearl, right? That's what he says. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Every several great was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. Now, think about this city. I mean, it's going to be a beautiful city. We're going to see the city one day coming down from heaven. As long as it is wide, as it is high, made of precious stones, clear. And you say, well, what does that have to do with Isaiah 54? Because here's what I want you to understand, okay? If you go back to Isaiah 54 and look at verse number, uh, what was the verse that I had you look at? Verse number 11, Isaiah 54, look at verse number 11. He says, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted. Talking about people that are struggling, people that are going through trials, people that are going through struggles. He says, Behold, he says, Behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, and lay thy foundations with sapphires, and I will make thy windows of agates, and thy gates of carbuncle, and thy borders of pleasant stone. Here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, Hey, you're going through a trial, and you're going through a struggle, and you're being afflicted, and you're having problems, and it's hard right now. But he says, Hey, look, one day you're going to be in this beautiful city that's made out of these precious stones. It's going to be this beautiful city, this wonderful city, this great city. And you say, Well, what does that have to do? 
with my trials today. And here's what it has to do, okay? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and look at verse number 2. 2 Corinthians, if, I don't know if you're in Isaiah, Revelation, wherever you're at, go to 2 Corinthians. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. Notice what he says. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and a lot of people have a lot of different interpretations about this, and, you know, whatever your interpretation is is good. I'll tell you what I think. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, he says, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such an one cut up to the third heaven. Now, he's talking about, you know, having an out-of-body experience, okay? He's talking about he knows a man who basically was taken out of his body, and he was caught up to the third heaven. Third heaven is a reference to, you know, heaven where God is, not the atmosphere or the sky. Look at verse 3. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. I, and I, I, I personally think uh, Paul's talking about himself. I think this is something that happened to him. Could be wrong. Could be talking about someone else. We don't know. Look at verse 4. How that he was caught up into paradise. Now, I just told us he was caught up into the third heaven, and then he called, you know, heaven paradise. So there you got the Bible defining itself. What is paradise? It's heaven. People like, you know, we live in such a messed up world. People today say, no, paradise is hell. And that's a whole other thing. And it's just kind of ridiculous. But notice what he says. How that he was caught up into paradise. Notice what it says. And heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, a man went up to heaven, saw heaven, and it was so beautiful. It was so wonderful. It was so amazing that he can't even talk about it. He can't even express it. By the way, that's why your little 90 minutes in heaven is a, is a lie. You know, All these books that people want to write about, I went to heaven, and let me tell you all about it. I wrote this book. Guess what? We know of one person that went to heaven in the Bible, and we know they actually went to heaven because the Holy Spirit told us, and the Bible tells us that that person couldn't talk about it. It was so amazing. You, you don't have this guy writing a book. Let me tell you about my 90 minutes in heaven. And some of you are going to go watch that movie. And look, it's not real. It's fake. It's false. But here you have a man. And he's telling you, heaven is so beautiful, you can't even talk about it. You can't even describe it. I can't even explain it. I mean, could you even imagine what a city that is as long as it is wide as lo- and as it is high? I mean, could you even imagine what that looks like? It's made out of precious stone that is clear, that is see-through. A city that is see-through? It's that beautiful? And he says, you can't even talk about it. Now, now you're there in 2 Corinthians 12. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 9. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. Your little 90 minutes in heaven, and heaven is for real. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 9. I just like, I like messing you guys all up with all that stuff. It's fine. Look at verse 9. But as it is written, now notice what he says, but as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Listen, you have never seen anything like heaven. You've never heard of anything like heaven. You can't even imagine. I mean, he says, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into a, in the heart of man the things which God has prepared. He said, you can't even imagine what heaven is going to be like. You've never seen anything like it. You've never heard of anything like heaven. He said, well, what does that have to do with my trials? What does that have to do with my afflictions? Go to Romans chapter 8, look at verse 18. When you get to Romans... Keep your finger there or bulletin there or something because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. But go to Romans chapter number 8. Let me get there myself because I need to look at something real quick. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse number 18. You say, okay, well, what does heaven have to do with my problems, my trials, my afflictions? Notice what he says. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. See, whatever you're going through, and I'm not minimizing what you're going through. People go through hard things. I mean, people go through tough times, and, and, and they need to be comforted. And I mean, sometimes I, I'll visit people at the hospital, and I'm sitting there in the hospital bed, and I'll pray for them. But I can't even, I can't even imagine what they're going through. I can't, I can't comfort them. I, I, you know, I, I tell them, I, I love you, and I'm praying for you, and I'm so sorry that this is happening to you. People go through trials and struggles. They go through tribulations and persecutions, and it's hard. But Paul said, hey, it will be worth it all. He said, in fact, when you get to heaven and when you see what God has prepared for you, you won't even bring up your trials because they're not even worthy to be compared 
with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And, you know, let that comfort you. Realizing that one day I'm going to get to heaven, and guess what? It will be worth it all. It, 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 the, the sufferings of this present time, they're, they're just not even worthy to be compared. And I think that's what God is talking about there in Isaiah 54. If you get, make your way, keep your finger there in Romans 8. Go back to Isaiah 54. When he talks about the fact that you're afflicted and you're you know, not comforted, and then he begins to talk about these precious stones, I think what he's trying to say is this. Just stay faithful. Just stay with it. Just don't quit. Just don't give up. It'll be worth it. Don't you worry. What God has prepared for you is so amazing. You've never even heard of it. You can't even, you know, you never, you know, you can't even see it. You can't even imagine what God has for you and for I. Go back to Isaiah 54, look at verse 13. We'll, we'll finish up here real quick. Again, we kind of change, change modes a little bit, but look at verse 13. Notice what he says. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord. And great shall be the peace of thy children. One day when we're in heaven or during the millennial reign, the Bible says that God himself is going to teach children. Now that's a Sunday school that you can let your kids go to, you know. You can trust God. I don't trust you, so I won't put my kids in a room with you, but, you know, or, or some stranger. But when God is teaching, hey, that's great. He says, and all thy children shall be taught of the Lord. Now I want you to notice this. It is a priority for God that children are taught the Bible. And here we see that he wants, he, even, during the, even during the millennial reign or the New Jerusalem, wherever there is, is he says, hey, your children are going to be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of thy children. Go back to Isaiah 28. Look at verse 9. We got, we got to finish up. But let, me, let me show you a couple of things and, and we'll, be, we'll be done here soon. Isaiah uh, 28. Look at verse 9. If you go back to Isaiah you know, at Verity Baptist Church, we are a family-integrated church. We don't have nurseries. We don't have, you know, Sunday school classes. We don't separate the children into different areas. We bring everybody together. Part of that is for safety because the Bible says that there are false prophets that come in. They're going to prey on unstable souls. I mean, just open up a newspaper and you're going to find that you got all these freaks and sodomites and pedophiles that are going to churches and trying to get along with children so they can defile them. We're not going to allow that at Verity Baptist Church because guess what? Kids are going to stay with their parents all the time. They're never going to be separated. We're not going to put, you know, I love you and, and honestly I, I, I trust every single one of you, but we're not going to put you in a room with a bunch of kids. You know, you can, we're going to keep the kids with their parents in an open space. Everyone's going to stay together. Part of that is for safety. But part of that is because, you know what? Children need to be taught the Bible. And in these Sunday school classes and nurseries, kids are not being taught anything. They're drawing their little pictures of Jesus with long hair, and they're being showed their little stories, you know. But children need to be in church where they get taught the Word of God. And notice, God commands it. Are you there in Isaiah 28? Look at verse 9. Notice what he says. He says, Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine. He said, who am I going to teach knowledge? Who am I going to teach doctrine to? Notice what he says. Them that are weaned of the milk. He's talking about a child that just recently stopped nursing. He says, that's the child that I'm going to teach knowledge to, and that's the child that I'm going to teach doctrine to, and are drawn from the breast. See, sometimes people say, well, these kids, you put them in church, and they're not going to understand, you know, everything. But here's, what, here's the beautiful thing about having kids in church is that they get what they can get. They grasp what they can grasp. And sometimes I say things, and, and you know, maybe it goes over their head, but guess what? There are things that I say that go over your head. The adults. I know that for a fact. You want to know why I know that for a fact? Because, you know, I mean, if I, if I had a nickel for every time this happened, I, I will preach something. Literally, I'm not talking about like I preached something a month ago. I'm talking about like I'll preach something, and at the end of that service, someone will walk up to me and say, you know, I was wondering about, you know, and they'll ask me something, and I'm like, I just preached the whole sermon on that. They're like, what were you doing? You know, and they're like, and people, you know, you, you don't get everything. As an adult, guess what? Children don't get anything either. But that's okay. They get something. Because notice how it works. Look at verse 10. And by the way, this is why you need church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, week after week after week. Isaiah 28, verse 10. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. See, you can't get it all in one sermon. You can't get it all in one sitting. You need to just hear a little, you need to hear a little, you need line upon line, precept upon precept, and eventually over weeks and years of going to church, weeks and years of reading your Bible, you will learn a lot of the Word of God, and it will help you in your life. 
Go to Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22. Let me give you some advice just real quickly because we're hitting all sorts of random things. Tonight's like a buffet. We're just giving you all sorts of things. You do what you want with it. Proverbs 22, look at verse 15. But, you know, because we are a family-integrated church and because we have children in the service, you know, you ought to train your children to be able to sit in the service. And when families first start coming to our church, you know, I get this, and it's totally normal, and it's totally natural, and that's fine. There's always that, you know, few weeks or few couple months when children are kind of getting adjusted to sitting in the service, and kids usually get it pretty well. But let me give you some advice. You, you ought to train your children to sit in the church service by training your children to be able to sit at home. Are you there in Proverbs 22? Look at verse number 15. Proverbs 22 and verse number 15. Notice what it says. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Look, children are going to be bad. All children are going to be bad. And people like to talk about, oh, these kids, my kids, they were, your kids were bad too, okay? You just don't remember because you're old now or something, you know? Your kids were just as bad as these kids here today. And guess what? Their kids are going to be bad too, okay? Kids are bad. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. But just because children are foolish doesn't mean we ought to leave them that way, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from them. From him. And listen to me. If you go to a family-integrated church, which anyone that goes to this church does, you need to be taking time at home to teach your children to sit quietly. And here's what I always encourage everyone to do. You ought to have Bible time with your children where you expect them to sit down and be quiet and put their hands on their lap while mommy or daddy reads the Bible to them for a certain amount of time. Now, I'm not saying you need to preach a 45-minute sermon to your kids every day, but, you know, just sit down. And here's the thing. When your kids start messing around and start getting up and start being distracting, in the privacy of your own home, you can take that child and spank them. Because notice what it says. Proverbs 22:15. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. But the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. And you discipline that child at home. And you kind of train that child there. Train up a child in the way he should go is what it says earlier in the passage. Go to Proverbs 23, look at verse 13. Proverbs 23, look at verse 13. Proverbs 23, verse 13. Withhold not correction from the child. For if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Now we're not talking about child abuse, okay? I have to say that every time because people are weird. We're not talking about beating a child, you know. We're not talking about taking a fist to their face. If you do that, you need to, you have issues, okay? You need to get right with God and, you know, we need to beat you up or something. We're talking about taking a child and lovingly, you know, on their backside, spanking them. But notice what he says, Proverbs 23:13. Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with a rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with a rod and shall deliver his soul from hell. Go to Proverbs 29, I'm sorry, 19. Look at verse 18. Proverbs 19, 18. Notice what it says. Proverbs 19, 18. Chasten thy son while there is hope. Look, you want to be getting control over the child when they are five, not 15. You understand that? It's just going to get worse. Chasten thy son while there is hope and let not thy soul spare for his crime. So here's what I want to encourage you parents to do. You got to have time at home, especially you homeschool moms. You got to have time at home where your children are expected to sit quietly. My wife has Bible time with our children every day. Plus in school, they're expected to sit quietly. We try to have, you know, family Bible time in the evenings that I lead, and we do those from time to time. You know, we could probably be a little more consistent. Sometimes we get out of church late and we're not able to do stuff like that. But, you know, we try to do that on the nights that we don't have church. And guess what? Even sometimes just randomly throughout the day, my wife will have our children just, you know, it's quiet time. You need to go in your rooms and read a book quietly. And guess what? If they're not obeying, they're being disobedient, we spank them right there and we try to train them and we try to help them. And you do that at home and you'll have a better time at church. Now, let me go ahead and say this. You ought to train them at home, but you also ought to train them at church. And listen, if you need to spank your kids at church, spank them. And by the way, you parents that don't have kids and these parents are spanking their kids, you don't look down on them. You don't give them bad looks. You, you know, that's good. It's good that they're training their kids. And guess what? They're going to reap great benefits from that. But you, you know, and let me say this. These mother baby rooms and daddy rooms, they're not meant for you to go back there and just let your kids do whatever they want and I can just, you know, get on my phone and be on Facebook. If there's any moms on their phones right now, you put that stinking phone down, all right? Listen to me. And you say, why do you say that? Because every time there's one of them. And you need to be in there and the, jo- the point of that mother baby room is so you can sit those children and train them there and spank them there and the goal is to spend as little time in there so you can be out here so your kids can hear the word of God preached. 
That's the point. It's not, it's not nursery in there. Let's all go in there and we're going to play Monopoly while the kids run around. No. You sit there. There's a monitor in there so you can hear the preaching. And you train your children. And the goal is to bring them out here as much as possible. And through time, you'll have well-behaved kids and that'll be all good. Go back to Isaiah 54, look at verse 14. Isaiah 54, look at verse 14. Isaiah 54, verse 14. Someone's going to come up to me. I was, I was looking at my Bible on my phone. Whatever, that's fine. Sure you were. Isaiah 54, look at verse 14. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. And I just want to show you something. Look at verse 4 of Isaiah 54. Notice what he says. Fear not. You find that command all throughout the Bible. God commands you not to fear. He says, fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. Neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. Now in verse 14 he says, in righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. Now I want you to notice. The word oppression means to be put under or to be made subject. It means to be under someone's control. And I want you to notice what Satan does. He uses fear to control us. Remember in the, in the book of Nehemiah a few weeks, weeks back, I preached a sermon about, you know, what are you afraid of? And here's what he does. He uses fear to ensnare us. He uses fear to trap us. He uses fear to control you. And that's why God, all over the Bible, he says, all over the, the Word of God and, and, you know, the Gospels, Jesus constantly telling the disciples, fear not, fear not, fear not. Why? Because when you fear not, you will be far from oppression. For thou shalt not fear. And from terror. And by the way, that's what oppressive governments, that's what our oppressive government does. Tries to put us in fear, and we need to be afraid of these terrorists, and be afraid of that terrorist, and be afraid of these, you know, global warming. I mean, everything is trying to put you in fear. Why? Because they want to control you. And God says, hey, don't fear. God has not given us the spirit of fear. And we ought not be afraid. Look at verse, look at verse 16, um, and we'll finish up. Verse 16, verse 17 is probably the, the, the most famous verse in Isaiah 54, and it's a pretty famous verse in the Bible, but I want you to look at the context, okay? Because in verse 14 and 15, he just got done telling us, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't let them oppress you, for thou shalt not be in fear. He said, don't let them, you know, you're, you're going to be far from fear, you're going to be far from terror. Then he says this, verse 16, behold, I have created the smith. Now remember, he already said, I'm the creator, I'm the maker. And here he says, behold, I have created the smith. Now, why does he say that? Because the smith is the one who would work with uh, the, the metals there. He'd be the one that would make the weapons. Now, notice. Behold, I have created a smith that bloweth the coals in the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the waster to destroy. So he says, I created the man that creates the instruments. I created the man that creates the weapons. Look at verse 17. So then he says this, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And you say, well, how can God say that no weapon that is formed against us shall prosper? Here's how he can say that, because he created the guy that created the weapons. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And look, this verse, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is, far off, is of me, saith the Lord. There's a few different views on this. Let me give you both of them, because I don't really know which one it is. All right, So I'll just give you both. The first is that this is talking about the millennial reign of Christ. You know, no weapon that is formed against us is going to prosper. I'm sure that's true, and I agree with that. But the other one, and, and the, the Pentecostals and Charismatics, you know, they take this a little too far, but they try to talk about the fact that this is right now. No weapon that is formed against us is right now. And, you know, that may be true or not, but let me give you some context to it. Go back to Romans chapter 8. This is the last uh, place we'll look at tonight, and we'll be done. Romans chapter number 8. Look at verse number 28. Romans chapter 8, if you kept your place there, and look at verse number 28. Notice what he says. Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, I want you to notice, he doesn't say all things are good. He says all things work together for good. All right? He says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And I want you to notice, what were you predestinated to? Not to be saved, 
He knew that you would be saved, so he predestinated you to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, what God's trying to do in your life is to make you more like Jesus every day. He's trying to get you to be conformed to the image of his son. See, you are right now, many of us, and, and definitely before salvation, you were conformed to this world. But God's trying to take us from being conformed to this world to be conformed to the image of his son. And sometimes he has to use trials and struggles and weapons to hurt us. But here's the thing. They're not going to prosper against you because here's what you got to understand, Job. Even when bad things are happening, God allowed them. Because everything that happens in your life is filtered through God. And if you're going through struggles, you're going through troubles, you're having health issues, you're having financial issues, you're having relationship issues, God knows about it. And God is probably allowing you to go through it for a reason. And it's usually to make you conformed to the image of His Son. So there could be an idea here that the weapons may hurt you, but they won't prosper against you because God is actually using them in your life. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer.